Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Remote Marketing Podcast. I'm Rand Fishkin. Thank you so much for having me, Madhav. Yeah, for sure. Um, Rand, so an interesting thing was, you know, I was kind of looking around and it seems like you're about to complete two decades in marketing. Is that correct? <laughs> I guess that is correct. Yeah, I hadn't realized that was coming up. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's a that's a pretty long time, right? So, um, and so I think let's just start out by just kind of saying, I mean, kind of exploring, you've been in marketing for almost 20 years, right? So what have been like your top three lessons? And I know this is a very general question, but um, like what have been like the most breakthrough learnings for you in the last 20 years in marketing? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really fair. Uh, I think that marketing for me has proven to be um, much, much less about data and technology and um, sophistication, uh, attribution, and much more about storytelling and people and empathy than I would have expected. That that maybe is one of my one of my biggest lessons, one of my most surprising lessons. Um, I think also there's an, uh, well, one thing that, that has consistently surprised me is that people, um, people are influenced by their surroundings and their circumstances and the systems in which they operate and the systems that are built around them uh, far more than they are, let's see, groups of people are more uh, influenced by the situations that, that they're in versus their own sort of personal um, ability to change those circumstances and situations. And um, yeah, I think that I, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said, oh, well, if, if a group of people is acting in this way, it is because that group of people um, is comprised of individuals who have these beliefs or biases or, you know, whatever uh, qualities, positive or negative, traits, positive or negative. And now I realize that, um, that that's not true. That's, that's totally false, right? That you can take groups of people and, and scientists have all the time, right? And, and cultures have all the time, societies have all the time, change the circumstances around them, change the systems around them, change the incentives around them. Uh, economic and social and otherwise change the the groups around them, and they change too, right? That that they are mm -hmm. people are uh, in groups are extraordinarily malleable and and change uh, according to the circumstances that that are surrounding. And then I think the third, um, the third one is that uh, the the power to affect those systems and decisions is in the hands of a very small number of people. And that really surprises me as well. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's remarkable to think that um, you change Facebook's leadership, literally you just change Mark Zuckerberg into, um, you know, the other co-founder and probably the whole planet looks very different, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, you change uh, Bill Gates into someone else and the, the whole planet looks very different. You change Larry and Sergey into a couple of different people and the whole planet looks different. Same is probably true of, you know, just a few 
um, people, right? I think I think if if uh, you don't have Barack Obama, you have a very different United States, you have a very different world. If you don't have Donald Trump, you have a very different United States, you have a very different world. So just like it, it it's shocking the degree to which um, a few people, yeah, very small number of people control how how everything works. And then I think that, yeah, maybe if, if, they, if I got a fourth one, it would be uh, people like to think things are simple, that there are simple problems to solutions. And in fact, everything is very complicated. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> so those are, my, those are my big marketing lessons. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, let's kind of talk about the first thing, right? I mean, why do you feel that um, storytelling is kind of like more important? Like it's probably the most important thing over like data and you know analytics and everything. Like there was kind of like a wave in marketing that kind of came in, I think last decade for about five, six years where everyone was very focused on like, you know, data-driven experiments, you know, growth hacking is all about that, uh, you know, behind data and kind of making more informed decisions. And there's always a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, there's no way to validate kind of like uh, the ROI of, uh, you know, billboards or something like that, right? Um, which did make sense a little bit there, right? So, what, so why do you feel that storytelling is bigger than all of that? Um, I think, I mean, it's not just storytelling, it's, it's emotion and being able to uh, create resonant experiences and to have messages that spread. But I, I, think the reason, I think the reason behind that is because we as human beings are very, are terrible at processing and changing our decision making, um, especially as consumers, based on large scale logical um, explanations. And we are really, really good at changing our decision making when there is one story that we resonate with, right? That we can recall and identify with and um, that we can uh, uh, sort of tell other people that, and, and everyone shares the knowledge of that story. I think this is why, you know, this is why so much of classic advertising still works. This is why political advertising, you know, doesn't give you a bunch of statistical data that's like, well, here's what's happened since this person's election or that mayor's election, or, you know, we, this is what the, the town of Seattle has been experiencing. And this is why you should reelect this person or, you know, stop like, no, you don't do any of that, right? And that's not why anybody votes. And that's not why anyone chooses what to vote for. And, and voting is a very pure sort of um, way to analyze marketing, right? And what works and what doesn't. So, so I, like, I like examples like that. Um, but brands are this way too, right? The story around Coca-Cola or Pepsi, the story around Nike or Reebok or Adidas, the story around this football team, that tennis player, that, you know, this technology product, that technology product, it is, it's, I, we're having this conversation on Zoom, right? Yeah. Why not Skype? Why not Microsoft Teams? Why not, uh, why not Google Meet? Why not 50,000 50, other right, products? Zoom was right place, right time, right sort of story. Well, features are interchangeable with pretty much all those other ones, but mm -hmm. okay. Right, the the story and the timing, it played out really well. <laughs> Nailed some branding, right? We heard we heard years ago about, oh yeah, a lot of people are having better experience with with bandwidth on Zoom than they are on whatever Skype or or what have you. And so, 
that story sticks in our head, maybe it's not true anymore. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. It doesn't matter. That's what's stuck in our head. That's why we stick with it. Yeah. The the political campaigns example is a really interesting one. Um, Yeah. I mean, they don't really track the numbers, but I mean, clearly have an effect. Uh, So it's a pretty interesting uh, insight. Okay. Um, All right. So one of the things that always fascinates me is if you ask voters, right, if you say, hey, tell me things that you care about. Right. What, what, you know, what are sort of the issues that you care about? And then sort of how do you think those things have performed over the last whatever? And basically, they'll, you know, they will uh, first identify with their, you know, with their political uh, side, with their tribe, right? Because because tribalism plays a huge role. And then the the numbers that they give you, the data that they give you, the stories that they tell you, those are all representative of reinforcing which team they're on. Nothing to do with reality or truth, mm-hmm. right? And so, and and it's very much. You know, it's not about improving their life or the life of the people around them. It's not about solving a problem in their neighborhood, their community, with their business. People are willing to take on huge sacrifices, right? I'm willing to sacrifice tons of my own dollars. I'm willing to, you know, see terrible things happen to my whatever healthcare system in exchange for me getting to side with my tribe. Mm -hmm. That's pretty, that's really weird. It doesn't make any sense but it speaks to the power of storytelling and marketing, the power of, of being part of a group. Right, yeah, that's a good point. And the interesting thing was that, I think even at Moz, I mean, after many, many years, you kind of built this this tribe, you know, this community that was like yeah. incredibly, like I've heard so many of these, you know, every nook and corner of SEO professionals like, oh, you know what? I learned about SEO through that Moz course and everything. It's pretty interesting how that, uh, happened, but do you feel that um, building like a tribe and everything, Moz had a pretty interesting tribe and everything, but do you think that that over time converted well in terms of business outcomes? Um, or was that like... Yeah, it, I would say for the first, you know, for the first uh, seven or eight years of the company's life as a software product, it worked tremendously well, mm-hmm. right? So 2000, you know, 2007 to about 2014, you know, those were uh, remarkable growth years, right? Moz was was growing faster and getting bigger than any of its competitors. And then I think I think in a lot of ways, Moz lost the storyline, right? That the, mm-hmm. um, the community aspect of it became, um, was not about the product, mm-hmm. right? It, it sort mm-hmm. of never transitioned from being about the education and the content into the product itself. Um, and, and also I think that Moz tried to make its story something else, right? Moz wanted to try and shift the story from, Hey, we're not just SEO. We want to help with all these marketing things. And so then it became, Oh, well, you're not really my, you're not my tribe anymore, right? You're not my community. You want to be email marketing and content marketing, social media marketing, all these different things. And what is, okay. So (laughs) Where's my where's my community now? Where's my SEO world? Oh well, maybe it's SEMrush or Ahrefs or you know one of these other players, right? Maybe maybe it's Search Engine Journal. That's where I'll go and get my information, or Search Engine Land, or SE Roundtable, or Twitter, or, you know whatever it is, right? And um, and so I think a lot of that momentum that had been built around the community was was lost when Moz tried to go from hey we're gonna we're going to tell this one story about helping this group of people and we are always on their side and their team to 
oh, well, you're too small for us. You're too small a community. We need yeah. to go bigger than you. That's not, that, that's not a story that resonates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100% agree on that. So like, um, I mean, so now you've got like this, your new venture, Spark Toro, and I was kind of trialing it. Um, beautifully done, lots of great insights. Um, okay. I, um, and so it was interesting to see now that, I mean, I think Spark Toro is almost about two years old right now, right? Uh, so it was founded, yeah, two years ago. Uh, it okay. is only, it's not even two months old as a product. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we only launched in uh, April, April 22nd. Ah, okay, got it. So, all right. But then I remember, I think in the last two years, you've, you know, probably like once, I don't know, a quarter or something, you'd publish this study about, you know, clicks or all of that. I mean, you had a lot of um, interesting content, right? So, how are you kind of going ahead with Spark Toro, you know, in terms of like these learnings about storytelling, um, like how are you proceeding with it, how are you kind of building a story to kind of, you know, like let Spark Toro kind of become the thing that it's supposed to be? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things that we want to do with Spark Toro is, is stay much more focused around what the product is, right? So, which means having to say no to a lot of things. Like we're not going to yeah. become that. We're not going to serve this audience, right? We're not going to serve all these use cases. We're going to be very specific about um, exactly what we do and, and why and how. Um, and then a, a lot of the content that I've been creating and writing, so about the, you know, um, the data about sort of loss of opportunity in SEO, uh, about the, you know, the the challenges with ranking in Google and competing against Google themselves. Um, around the tech monopolies sort of exercising their power in certain ways, around the, the challenging duopoly of Facebook and Google's ads. Um, you know, a lot of that is uh, talking about the problems that make, that made me want to create SparkToro, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the reason that the company exists in a big way is, hey, this Google Facebook duopoly in terms of advertising and control of the web is incredibly frustrating for, you know, a ton of reasons. But for advertisers and marketers in particular, organic and paid, it, it really reduces your ability to have a competitive advantage through creative yeah. forms of marketing, right? Because you, Facebook and Google won't tell you anymore which publications and people and sources and podcasts are influential to which audiences, right? They used to do that through uh, a little bit through the, the, the old Google uh, AdSense interface and through uh, Facebook's um, audience insights tools uh, for pages and for and through Facebook ads, and then they pulled back, making more and more of that data opaque, hard to get, intentionally so, right? So that you spend all your money with them. They don't <laughs> want you to go find the podcasts that reach your audience and form a relationship directly. They want you to have to go through their advertising services. So natural result of capitalism. But SparkToro's trying to disrupt that. We're trying, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to bring that data back to marketers and advertisers. And as a result, talking about that story, right? Setting up the, um, the data and the storytelling so that a marketer can convincingly walk into a boardroom, an executive team, uh, go talk to their CMO, go talk to their client and say, hey, we're spending $100,000 a month with these, mm -hmm. with these two, two companies. Maybe we should take a small portion of that and see what our return would be if we did some creative forms of marketing by going directly to the places that reach our customers. Yeah. And, and, and my opinion is not only is that a win for marketers, 
that's also a win for the economy as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. Because what you don't want, the worst thing you can have in a mature developed economy is uh, monopoly power and, and control by a few entities instead of a widely distributed uh, you know, group, thousands and millions and tens of millions, hopefully, of companies and individuals with parity of power, right? Mm, yeah. That is, that's how you build a robust, you know, fair, equitable world. That's how you create opportunities for startups and new entrepreneurs. That's how you make sure that, you know, it's not just whatever, rich old white guys who, who keep getting more and more money out of extracting more and more money out of the economy and everybody else kind of suffers. And, and unfortunately, right, you can see that in the United States as, as well. I, I think um, less so in other places, but certainly here. And yeah, so we're trying to like tell all those stories and in our own tiny little way, make a difference and change it. That's an interesting insight. So um, do you feel that with Sparkto, you're kind of trying to build like a new category or are you kind of entering an already filled category? And then is the goal with Sparkto kind of uh, not to become like a thousand people company and kind of keep it like, you know, relatively small? Uh, what are your yeah. thoughts there? Yeah, yeah, Casey and I, <laughs> Casey maybe even more so than me, um, really wants to keep SparkToro relatively small, right? So maybe mm -hmm. it'll be, in a few years, maybe it'll be 10 or 20 or 30 people, but uh, yeah, hundreds or thousands is not of interest to us. Mm -hmm. um, and also, right, I think that um, in terms of the, you know, the vision for what we want to, for who we want to help, right, who we want to serve, it's very much small and medium businesses, right? So a lot of our, a lot of our customers right now are small and mid-sized agencies, um, individual consultants, that's, that's about 50%, and the other 50% is small to mid-sized brands, right? Brands, consumer and, and B2B, uh, it's almost half and half now, that are, yeah, between you know, five and 100 employees, most oh, of them. Wow. So mm -hmm. a lot of small and mid-sized businesses, I think because they're the ones who are nimble enough to make those choices, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty tough to go and convince whatever P&G or Nike or Apple, like, hey, maybe you should go experiment in these, you know, whatever, sponsoring some podcast or, or, or finding some uh, social account to, to help promote your, your piece or going and finding some place to go uh, do a guest editorial that's not gonna, it, it doesn't work for them, right? Yeah. They're, they're too big, doesn't move their needle. But, you know, if you're selling bone broth out of Austin, Texas, and, you know, whatever, uh, uh, 10 more customers next month makes a big difference for you, hey, yeah. right? Spark Toro can help you move that needle a lot. Interesting, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, and I think with all of these big companies with enterprise deals, it's just, you know, they require white labeling and customizations and like, you know, multi-month negotiations and everything. So it's probably uh, not. <laughs> yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't have any salespeople, right? So um, it's funny actually, Madhav, uh, I, I got a, an email, a couple emails in the last couple of days from folks who were like, hey, can, can you uh, give us a sales demo? You know, and uh, my response was, sure, but you know, I, I don't have any salespeople and there's no, formal way right like you can try it out for free and i think they were both surprised oh oh i can just try the product like me the person i go to the website and try the product huh, how cool is that like, and, you know there's a lot of enterprises that just aren't used to that um, 
Yeah, it is interesting. And you know, like, um, I remember when I was like checking out the product, you had a beautiful, like almost kind of like the, you know, the whiteboard thing, instructional video. And it was just so yeah. uh, interesting and unique. It, it didn't really seem like a product instructional video. It was more like, you know, hey, you know, I'm almost about to listen to, you know, hey fans, you know, <laughs> you know like yeah, that. Yeah, totally, right? Because I, we, I, think, I think Casey and I are very much driven by this idea of a, a human brand, a brand that, you know, that you can connect with personally. Um, and I think that, you know, very frankly, if you're a small company and your aspirations are not to become, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar unicorn, mm-hmm. that works really well, right? Yeah. I, I love working with businesses when I know the people there. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I don't have to know them personally, but I know who they are. I can see who they, who they really are, right? I can go... Uh, follow them on Twitter. I can see their Instagram posts. I, you know, they're human. Right. And that, right. um, yeah, that, that makes me feel a lot better about the businesses I work with. I love supporting those kinds of businesses locally and nationally and internationally. Right. I'd mm-hmm. much rather stay yeah. at a hotel that's owned by whatever, a, you know, a, a, some family in, in Italy that has owned this hotel for two generations, three generations. Right. I'd much rather have that than, um, yeah, let's go stay at another Hilton. <laughs> nothing, yeah. nothing wrong with Hilton, right? I don't have a problem with them, but eh, yeah, you know what, yeah, they I don't need my you. money, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, and I absolutely love this point that you said, right? Like, there not, doesn't need to be like this one big, you know, company in that space. It could just be like twenty small companies kind of servicing yeah. like the different niches, um, which is which is really interesting. And I think it's uh, it's I think it would be a good way of our industry move forward with that. But I think for you specifically, uh, um, I, you said you launched Paktoro about two months back. Not the ideal time to launch with the oh whole. God. <laughs> it's, been, it's been brutal. Wow. Just really challenging. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, you, I think probably for a year and a half and everything, you were kind of prepping for this launch and you had no idea about this whole COVID thing. And now things have kind of obviously the plan sort of changed and everything uh, with how you kind of, you know, move forward with SparkToro in terms of like marketing it and everything, right? So what do you feel are kind of like your, you know, how's your way forward with kind of marketing SparkToro, you know, during this crisis, after this crisis? And where do you feel that marketing is kind of going for the next one or two years? Yeah. Uh, so I think in the, in the short term, right, the last three, four months and probably the next at least six to nine, um, we're going to see, you know, considerably lower demand, um, definitely a lower tolerance for uh, spending money, right? There's going to be, a, there's a lot of businesses and a lot of consumers that just don't have the capital that they had. They don't have the cash. They don't have the demand on the customer side or uh, on the B2B side. And so as a result, conversion rates are lower. Um, the, the lifetime value tends to be less. The amount people are willing to spend is lower. And so I think that a lot of, for a lot of businesses, us included, um, many of our investments have to balance this idea of, hey, I, you know, I need to convert some customers now. I need to be able to stay alive and, and survive and thrive. So I've got to keep my own expenses low. But also, I want to invest in creating future demand. Right, because I think one thing we know from every cycle like this one is that there is a, an eventual recovery, and mm-hmm. you know, it's I think it's going to be better in a lot of places than it is in the U.S. because it looks like 
like the US is opening up too soon and so we're gonna get another wave and then demand will drop even further and a lot of people will be really scared, which is, which is terrifying, right? But um, the, yeah, I think as a business owner, you just have to be real about it. And then the, you know, the answer for us is let's do, let's do both, right? Let's try and work on who can we help now, right? Who, who has demand up because of quarantine? What are businesses that are uh, doing well in this space? How can we help and serve them, right? And, and, and charge money and, uh, and, and make, you know, a real product there and survive. And then also for everyone else, right? For people whose demand is down and for who don't have the, the bandwidth to invest, can we help them survive and thrive for free? Mm -hmm. right? Can we do more? Can we provide more of our product for free? And can we provide more educational content? And can we serve them in other kinds of ways that will help them? And then when they have the dollars in the future and when they have the need, they'll become customers as well. Right. So pent up future demand, I think, is a huge investment that we're making. And it's something I would urge every other marketer to, to invest in as well. Interesting. OK, um, so <clears throat> like when you kind of uh, I'm, I'm curious right now, like with SparkToro as a team right now, you guys uh, like have you been remote or do you work in an office? Like what's your setting like right now? Yeah, you can I mean, see I'm I mean, in a, uh, a garden <laughs> shed out back of my house. That's where I that's where I work out of. <laughs> Um, okay. And actually, this is uh, this is where I've been working all through uh, Spark Toro's life. And and Casey works from his house, which is uh, what he, I think he's probably about 35, 40 miles from here. So in in the Seattle area, but not Seattle proper. Okay. And uh, yeah, we've had um, we've been remote the whole time. And so quarantine, weirdly enough, other than than sort of taking away our uh, ability to get together every couple of weeks in person, hasn't been too bad. You know, hasn't changed us up. I, I do expect that. I, I think everyone's talking about this, right? That a lot of businesses that were that previously said, "Hey, we can't go remote," are going to go remote. I think a lot of people, a lot of human beings, are going to be looking for remote jobs, and I think that there will be a much greater tolerance by businesses of many, many different kinds who never considered it before to hire remote workers, and that will mean that there'll be a lot more distributed opportunity as well, mm -hmm. right? I think that many more people will be willing to work with employees, you know, outside their countries, outside their time zones, outside their cities and, and states. Um, and that's, that's I think, a really positive thing, right? I, I would love to see that distribution um, grow dramatically. I think there's, especially in the knowledge economy, there's a ton of opportunity that's untapped because people are obsessed with geography when they shouldn't be. Yeah. 100% agree. Um, and so, Bert, like at more specifically, um, I mean, you were, I think, working, I'm not sure, but I, I think you were working out of the office for almost 16, 17 years, right? So it was an immediate transition to remote, right? Um, was, it, was it difficult for you? Was it, did it come naturally? And like, did you face any specific challenges, you know, going from working with teammates in an office to just going 100% remote? You know, I, I got so much more productive. Oh my God. Uh, so, okay, first off, first off, I wanna be um, kind and, and respectful of the fact I don't have any children, right? Geraldine and okay. I have no kids. So mm -hmm. I think it's really, really different for people who have kids and those kids, you know, aren't going to school. And so they're, you know, parents are having homeschool. I think for those folks, the stress is super intense, the, the productivity, you know, you cannot ask them to be as productive as they were when they were going into an office and their kids had 
you know, school to go to and after school programs and all that kind of stuff, like completely different. But for mm -hmm. me, for me personally, um, I can get done in a day what would get, what would take me three to five at Moz, literally, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I just, it's just me in my office doing the work, right? right. And, and so, I, you know, the, the, all of the levels of communication, layers of communication, of getting permission, of getting approval, of, you know, sur surfacing an idea and then having a bunch of people give feedback on the idea. All that process stuff is gone, right? Mm -hmm. I have an idea. I want to see it executed in the product. All I have to do is convince Casey. That's it. What mm -hmm. I have one person to convince my, you know, myself and Casey, right? That's it. <laughs> then we're done. And then if it, if it works, right, that that goes live in the product, and and users get a better experience, and our product gets better, and and you know we have more success. And that is, um, that's really meaningful, right? That yeah, that style of working is far far better for me. I I don't need the social interaction. I don't need the whatever water cooler thing. Um, and I'm very lucky, right? I have folks like you who email me and are like, Hey, let's have a chat. And so I get to have, I get to have wonderful conversations like this one, mm -hmm. right. With people all over the world. And, you know, I maintain a lot of that um, just naturally through, through how my job and work function. So I'm, I'm <laughs> blessed, right. I'm really lucky. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, and I'm really like, I think you, like you've been very kind with everyone, you know, just kind of agreeing to get on everyone's podcast. That's been uh, pretty awesome of you. Um, but, you know, I've, I've also seen a lot of marketing leaders kind of, um, you know, have this rhetoric where they're saying that um, they want their team like around them, you know, kind of in an office just because, you know, uh, they want uh, like the, unless, you know, I mean, they, they find it difficult to work and everything, um, which is, uh, yeah, which is a little, I don't know, it could, it could have a point, but it's interesting how some people prefer that yeah, as well. I, whenever I hear that, I worry that it is more perception and a desire for control than it is actually a um, a fundamental necessity. And, and I want to be empathetic to the fact that some people really do work better in offices. Um, I think, you know, some of it is how much space do you have at home and, and can that space be quiet and private and can it be uh, functional for you? I, that's certainly challenging, especially in big cities where apartment sizes are tiny and, um, you know, uh, there, there's lots of demand. So yeah, I, I have empathy there. At the same time, I think that it's probably not a good idea to force everyone to fit your model, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if Casey and I were doing more hiring, more substantial hiring, uh, we, we would probably look to tr either try and find people who work really well remotely, right? We would mm -hmm. look for people who want that kind of culture, um, who love it, or we would look to also have some physical office somewhere mm -hmm. where people could go for people who that works better for. Yeah, makes sense. Um, all right, okay. I know I went a little bit um, outside of our conversation, um, oh <laughs> but then, so, you know, we were talking about predictions and everything, and, you know, you see the demand being a little um, subdued and everything, uh, at least for the next six, seven months, and then focusing on like the big wins. now. You know, I think it was a, a couple of weeks back, I kind of read um, this this beautiful article that he wrote on SparkToro about marketing flywheels, kind of like, um, and it's it's kind of like something that's echoing across everywhere. Everyone's like, you know, um, you know, like 
you know, fun, the, the time of funnels are over, it's the time of flywheels, you know, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> and interestingly, like, um, there's this, there's this growth program that, you know, I attended, like earlier this year, it's called Reforge, uh, by Brand mm-hmm. Balfour, right, and he, I mean, it's almost like every five or 10 minutes, the same rhetoric keeps coming in, you know, like, loops, not funnels, loops, not funnels. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people are now thinking, you're thinking around marketing flywheels. So just thought that, um, could you kind of like give a little bit of background on like, what, you know, what do you think, like, what's a marketing flywheel? How do you think with it? And why should, you know, marketing teams kind of start pursuing uh, marketing with a flywheel perspective than uh, the regular funnels? Sure. So it's weird. I have never thought about a flywheel as being in opposition to a funnel. Okay. Like I think of them as, as just two different things. I, I certainly think about uh, Spark Toros and I thought about Moz's um, funnel, right, as basically being, hey, people are, you know, they go from a stage where they're aware of the company to they have problems that the company can potentially solve for them. And then they you know, examine the product and they, they consider whether it's right for them and then they potentially convert and hopefully they upgrade their account over time and come back again and again, right? And that's the, that's the funnel. And then the, the flywheel is just how do we make them aware of the company, right? What's the, what are the tactics that work together in concert to get to this level of they're aware of us, they come visit us, they come check out our product, right? How do we get people uh, into that part of our funnel? And that, that is where I find the flywheel analogy so useful, right? The, the, the idea that I make an investment that each time I make it, whatever it is, right? Whatever marketing thing I do, uh, it gets easier and easier each time I do it, or it gets cheaper and cheaper each time I do it, mm-hmm. or it returns more and more each time I do it, and hopefully all three of those. Right. right. The ideal, the ideal flywheel is I do a marketing thing and every time I do it, it gets a little easier. I get more out of it. It becomes cheaper. Mm. Boom. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's just a huge win. And that's really different than thinking about um, marketing as just a series of tactics and channels that I invest in as long as they're ROI positive. Right. Right. So that's kind of the Gary Vaynerchuk, like omni-channel approach. I just, I try and be everywhere and I'm across every platform and, Oh, there's people on TikTok. That means I'm on TikTok. What the heck are people gonna do with Spark Toro on TikTok? I don't and 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 I don't like it, and I'm not good at it, and I don't have interest in it. So should I really be there? Is that are you sure that's right? As opposed to what if there's only one or two things right. I'm really good at that I can do again and again and again, and every time I strike that iron, right? It, it produces additional returns, right? So every time I do some press and PR, more people, more journalists and writers become aware of my brand, and now they're gonna cite me again in the future, and I, you know, and I grow my presence with that world, and that media reaches more people, and then those reporters go on to other places, and it becomes a, a cycle, right? And oh, mm-hmm. wow, yeah, everybody's writing about SparkToro, and now it feels like the ball, you know, it goes from a little tiny snowball to a big, gigantic boulder that's rolling down the hill. Yeah. All right. You know, beautiful, right? That's that that kind of flywheel is what I'm looking to create, but the flywheel fills my funnel. Mhm. And yeah, yeah. You you're absolutely right here. Um so right now what's kind of like the number one flywheel for Spark Toro? 
Yeah, for us, it is uh, free account usage and email. So, which is really different from what I did at Moz, right? So Moz, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know, Moz was, you know, I blogged, I did content marketing, I did Whiteboard Friday, I ranked in Google uh, with, with SEO, right, for keywords, and then I got traffic to the site, and some of those people would go check out the product, and that's how we got, you know, customers and free trials. Mm -hmm. And with SparkToro, it's very much a, I... You know, I go and talk about the product different, in different places. I do a little bit of content, but it's not very SEO driven because very frankly, SparkToro is not in a space that people search for, right? Mm -hmm. To your point, it's, it's sort of creating, creating a category rather than serving existing demand. So SEO is not a great match for that. Do a lot of social media marketing. I do a lot of um, PR and, and mm -hmm. press stuff and interviews and webinars and events and all that. Right. And then, and then people hear about the product. So they go check it out from wherever, whatever source. And then when they go check it out, it's free to try. You can, you can run a bunch of searches for free. I think we're 10 searches for free. Although most people usually get 15 or 20 because we give a lot of credit uh, mm -hmm. queries for free. And then if, you know, if some of those people every day are like, Oh, I need this. We're using this regularly at our, whatever company and our agency and our marketing team. And then they, they sign up. So it's a different flywheel than what we used at Moz, but mm -hmm. so far has been going, well, it, it's challenging. Absolutely. Right. But we are, um, we're ahead of our budget, just slightly ahead of our budget, despite the fact that we launched during the pandemic. So we're, yeah. we're feeling pretty good about that. That's pretty awesome. Um, so, and you know, you brought up an interesting thing, right? Like you, you're kind of building a new category. So there's not a lot of, um, search volume as such um, for right. a lot of the content that you write, right? There's also yeah. kind of like um, like a trade-off here, right? So for example, you're, you're writing a lot of, let's say a lot of thought leadership content, right? Um, and then there's SEO-focused content, right? Um, there, there's often the question where like, how do you kind of get traffic to your thought leadership content, right? The problem with content promotion, all of these things is that you do a little bit of it, it's gonna you know, increase a little bit and then die down. Um, while yeah. with SU and all of these things, it's kind of like compounding it. It's slow and steady, but then over time it grows. Um, and so yeah, people are, yeah, exactly. Right. So, and then people are kind of like, then kind of thinking that, does it make sense? Uh, you know, even personally for me, right? Like I've always seen that when you kind of write thought leadership content, it's great. Everybody reads it. You know, some people share it, everything, right? But the, the amount of, you know, like coverage that you get from search and everything is really less because there's no, Maybe there's no volume. Maybe you didn't do any of that volume, right? Right. So how would you kind of like, you know, deal with that? Like you can, like right now you've got like, I don't know, eight, 10, 20 pieces, which are like really, really well-written thought leadership pieces in your content, uh, sorry, on your blog. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's a very likely chance they're not going to kind of like get a lot of SEO traffic and everything. So um, is it something that's kind of like, echo, like echoing in an empty chamber or um, is there more to it? Yeah, so for, for me, the flywheel portion of that, rather than relying on Google to be the traffic, the, the overtime traffic driver, it, it still is, right? I still get mm -hmm. some of that. But the big overtime traffic driver that I'm hoping to build is subscriptions, email subscriptions, right? Mm -hmm. People go to the blog, they're like, oh, this stuff is really good. And if they see that twice or three times or four times and they're like, oh, man, every time this guy's putting out a blog post, I feel like I should be reading it. So they subscribe. So they subscribe via email, right? And that's where the thought leadership comes into play, right? Because because the way that you win in the 
in the non-SEO content game, right, uh, whether you call it thought leadership or you just sort of call it, you know, whatever, um, uh, sort of high quality, high signal to noise ratio content, uh, the way that you win there is people subscribe to your blog, mm -hmm. right? So every time I, I, we have a few, I want to say it's somewhere between five and 8,000 email subscribers right now who, who basically like get the post via email when I publish a new one. Mm -hmm. And so my goal is essentially keep those people subscribed by putting out content regularly enough that they stay interested, but not so frequently that they get overwhelmed mm -hmm. and, um, and do it in such a way that uh, my social channels, uh, the, the sharing that people have between each other, may email it to their friends, the amounts of traffic that Google does send me, uh, the amplification that, that happens um, you know, through, through uh, network distribution stuff, all of that is sending people back to either A, try the product, or B, sign up to subscribe to the emails. Right? Mm -hmm. So now I've got a flywheel, because hopefully a year from now, I'll have 10,000 people on that email list. And so every post I send will have two to three times the amount of reach and impact, right? And so mm -hmm. slowly, steadily building the flywheel that way. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, you can follow Rand on Twitter. Just type Rand Feshkin. You'll find him. Or you can email him at rand at sparktoro.com. Um, if you have any particular thoughts or opinions or feedback um, on the episode or in general, you can email me at madhav at remotemarketing.org. And I think before you leave, you know, if you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please consider kind of giving a rating. I think that would really help us, help me kind of get this podcast more visibility. Um, but yeah, um, hope you enjoyed this and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.